The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What they're saying here is if Trump wants to make an advice of counsel defense, which he said that he does, um, he's going to have to put some of that information into the public. Um, and they'd like to see it now, essentially. So they're essentially trying to speed up the schedule and kind of trying to get that on the table um, before the, the trial begins. Um, there's some extended explanation of why they think that's appropriate. But I did read this as kind of... Uh, signal to Trump that, you know, he can't keep saying one thing and doing another. If he's going to talk about advice of counsel defense, he needs to actually hand over that information. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 14th, 2023. It's another episode of Trump Trials and Tribulations, our YouTube live stream conducted live on Zoom for Lawfare material supporters. This week, we heard from Roger Parloff straight out of the hearing before Judge Eileen Cannon on whether witnesses in the Mar-a-Lago case had conflicts of interest. We also heard from Anna Bauer, who was straight off of two days of hearings in the Fulton County case, and Quinta Jurassic gave us an update from Judge Tanya Chutkin's courtroom on all the motions that have been filed since the last time. We also took audience questions, which you can submit in the future if you become a material supporter of Lawfare. It's the Lawfare podcast, Trump Trials and Tribulations, hearing updates from Mar-a-Lago and Fulton County. Let's start, Roger, with uh, South Florida, what were you in court today to uh, listen to hearings on? Yes, and just to, uh, I'm in Fort Pierce. The, the, uh, ah, you misspoke. Um, sorry. Yeah. There were two hearings. They're called Garcia hearings in the uh, in this circuit, the, uh, the 11th Circuit, and probably the 5th Circuit too. Um, and these are hearings where um, the government Asked, the, the government asked for, uh, he wants the judge to apprise the, the defendants, in fact, both of the defendant, uh, co Trump's co-defendants, about potential conflicts uh, or actual conflicts that uh, their lawyers may have. 
and to waive those uh, knowingly or and intelligently, or to be uh, the government originally wanted uh, the judge to actually supply independent counsel to be there to explain these things to them uh, privately, but the judge declined to do that. Uh, government also originally wanted. Part of the problem is these both attorneys have uh, represented people that are now government witnesses uh, or, or are likely to be government witnesses. So wait, let me just pause you on that because like, that's an unusual situation. These are two lawyers who have defendants in the case. One is Walt Nada, and he's represented by Stanley Woodward, I believe. Yes. And the other is uh, Mr. Dale Levera, who was indicted later than the first two. Uh, and he is represented by Mr. Irving. And both of these lawyers have other clients who are likely to or may be called as witnesses. Is that? That's right. So as a, as a preliminary matter, I just want to ask, why is that even like, remotely okay is there is there some isn't there some rule that says you know if i'm representing anna and quinta is going to testify against anna i can't also be representing quinta well so the background there are two rights that you have uh you have a right to be represented by conflict free counsel but you also have a right to be represented by counsel of your choice. And so to a degree, you can waive some conflicts. And then there's a fuzzy line. At some point, you reach the fuzzy line. And beyond that, you can no longer even waive the conflict. But it's blurry. Here, for instance, with John Irving rep the fourth representing uh, the Oliveira, I think most of us can understand why the conflicts were clearly waivable. To begin with, as soon as the government brought them up, he stopped representing the other witnesses in question. So this lawyer, Irving, no longer represents the people that the government may call. And he has another co-counsel who will do the cross-examine of the nation of those witnesses. The, the issue that arises, even if you formerly represented somebody, is that while you represented them, you had a confidential relationship. They told you stuff, and you should not be using that when you cross-examine them. But if you have a co-counsel who was never in on any of that, and you've kept a wall, and you aren't telling him, ask him this, um, then it may be okay. And uh, ideally, the witness also waves, you know, maybe the witness himself will say, okay, I don't mind the fact that he used to represent me. It's not, not a problem. And that's what happened in the case of De Oliveira and John Irving. Okay, so so they do these kind of separately, right? Yes, there were two separate hearings. And for those who've never been to a hearing like this, think of it as kind of like a 
uh, an arraignment or a, almost a plea hearing. You're, you're having, the judge is having and the lawyers are having a conversation with the, the defendant to make sure that he uh, is aware of all the factors and has knowingly uh, given up uh, knowingly waived is that it's basically a colloquy, right? Exactly. It's a um, it's a it's a lot like a guilty plea. You you go through and you understand this, right? Yeah, I understand. And you understand you're waiving that, right? Yeah, I understand. And so she went through that, and you know, usually there's sort of a script that's available. You know, if this has happened before and. Uh, there's a way to cover all the points. And she did that competently. And, and you know, uh, the Oliveira came to this country uh, from Portugal when he was 17. Um, he, is, he has, he never completed high school. So you're sort of asking him very, fairly sophisticated questions about you understand on cross-examination, uh, you know, he won't be able to use the stuff that, and and at the end of and he goes yes 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 and at the end she said can you explain in your own words the the conflict we're talking about and of course he couldn't really but uh, they, they go through anyway and he waved and waved and I, I think it'll hold up the problem was with Nauta all of the conflicts are are more serious and on top of that the government raised some new issues today that weren't in. Uh, the briefing, and uh, the judge was uh, upset about that. All right, so let's let's dispense with Irving and De Oliveira because that sounds like the simple one. They go through the colloquy. What happens? You know, why is it not simply routine? Uh, you say they got through it, and you think it'll hold up. But the government also raised some issues in that briefing. In that colloquy that then had implications for Mr. Nada and his lawyer, Stanley uh, Woodward. What did the government bring up and why did it uh, irritate Judge Cannon? Yeah. And it not only irritated her, but it blew up the hearing. She couldn't complete the hearing. She needed to stop it and have more briefing. And, and, that, and of course, that irritated her. And um, in the papers, they talked about the obvious conflict of the one I just mentioned, where you have client confidences with the witness, and the danger is that you can't use those. You need to protect that witness. And if you're cross-examining the witness, you sort of have to hold back, because you can't, you may know stuff from those confidences that you could really zing him with, but you can't do that. So you can't be a zealous. Uh, as you might be. Today, they mentioned something else. They said that, you know, actually, when it comes to summation, if you want to say that these witnesses that you used to represent are lying, you know, you, you want to question their credibility, beyond the issue of client confidences, there's an issue of client loyalty. Uh, we think there's some case law, and they cited three district court rulings from New York. And uh, there's some case law that says that you really shouldn't be impugning the credibility of a former client. And 
as I'll mention with Woodward, it's actually a current client. Here, here are the differences between Nauta's situation and Oliveira's. It's, it's a certain, to begin with, it's a certainty the government is calling this guy called Trump employee four. And so it's not a, they may call him, it's, it's a certainty, so, they are so, called. So just to be clear, in Woodward's case, the other client will definitely be called as the witness, where in Irving's case, it's sort of hypothetical that he represents That's people right. who could be called. Yes. And uh, now, Trump employee four, who reportedly is Yusil Tavares, he's the IT director down there, he does have a new lawyer at this point. Still, uh, his situation is aggravating. Nobody's accusing Woodward of wrongdoing. Nobody's accusing Woodward of wrongdoing. But while he was represented by Woodward, he gave grand jury testimony that the government says, and that he now says, was perjury. And then after he ceased to be represented by Woodward, he corrected that testimony, and it's now inculpatory of all the others. So to cross-examine him, you will be cross-examining on that change of testimony. And Woodward does have a particular information that's relevant to that. And the government says it's even possible, uh, if not likely, that during cross or re-examination, it may emerge that it may come out from an answer that Woodward represented that uh, client. Another difference is that the other witness who may testify against Nauta is a current client of Woodward's. And that's different from, uh, that's importantly different also. So you had, uh, and uh, then a third difference is that um, certainly Trump employee four has not waived the client confidences that Woodward possesses. So, so I'm, I'm hung up here. Like, so in the, in the Irving hearing, um, which comes first, I take it, uh, the government says, Oh, by the way, there's this other issue that we didn't mention in any of the briefing, which is what are they going to do on in summation? Are they going to smear their former clients and Oliveira says, well, if that happens, I waive. It's not a problem for me. Well, it, it's a little better than that. Uh, I mean, he did. Uh, he did. He did. He, he did waive. And um, uh, but Irving said, you know what? These things, uh, these allegations he makes, some of them, you know, uh, we're not going to say that he's lying. We're going to say you're misunderstanding what he was saying and uh, or, you know, so we don't need to go there. So, OK, so it, you can paper it over in the Irving uh, de Oliveira case. But then now it's time to deal with uh, Woodward and Nada, where the conflicts are much more severe and you would have to. And you can't necessarily say this about your own client, your current client in summation. You really have to say, oh, if, if you know, yeah, Quinta Jurassic testified that about Anna Bauer, but, you know, you know, Quinta Jurassic is a known notorious liar. And, 
you know, well, and here's all the dirt I have. How does that not immediately become an unbridgeable conflict? Well, it, it's interesting because um, Woodward takes the position that these cases are not uh, good law and uh, there's no 11th Circuit law on point. So he's allowed to slime his own client? Um, that's how I understood it. That's how I understood. Remind me to hire a different lawyer. <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, Judge Cannon seemed uh, skeptical of these cases as well, but uh, she was mainly uh, pissed that they weren't brought up earlier so that everyone could be prepared to address them. And certainly Woodward had not prepped his client. He had not said, you know, to to waive these potentially, you know, he'd not said, you know, it may come up that on cross-examination, or no, that on summation, I'll be precluded from attacking the, the credibility of these opposing witnesses, because he, he doesn't, he didn't, and he didn't think that's the law, he doesn't think that's the law. So that's when it fell apart. Uh, and, uh, uh, and the judge said, we need more briefing and we need it to schedule a new follow-up. All right. So is that how she left it? What, uh, as in, yeah, uh, we, we need to brief these cases and I'll reschedule a different hearing. Another one for, um, for him, the one again for, uh, yellow barrel was completed. He waved right. that's over. All right. So before we move on to Fulton County, I would be remiss if I didn't, uh, ask you for an Eileen Cannon behavior check. You know, she's the big, the big mystery figure in all of this. Um, the last time we checked in about her, you were bewildered by her attitudes towards SEPA and her propensity to slowness. How did she do today? She was pretty good. I hadn't seen her before. Uh, Anna has been has seen no, but her you, before. No, but you've read her. her yes, yes, I've read been her. Bewildered yeah. by them. Yeah, this is the first time I saw her, and you know, like to do a the guilty plea portion, you know, is 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 pretty sort routine. Of, right, and she did it competently, and she was. But when this issue first arose, I, at, at first I, I was a little startled. At she, she was from. With the Oliveira, she was already angered that this came up. And it, I was a little startled because I just thought, well, he's waving everything. Why don't you just ask him, Are you, will you wave this? And, and, uh, and of course, he did wave it. But she was already angry. I don't know if she foresaw uh, that what a big change this was going to make with Nauta. Now, because there wasn't a comparable screw-up, and this was sort of a screw-up, I mean, there's no, there isn't really, they, they didn't have a good answer. It was like, well, in the other brief, this was enough to ask for the hearing. So we didn't put this in, but you know, that's not good. Everyone needs to be prepared and she's may need to make a ruling about what's waivable and what isn't. So it was the government here that screwed up. And so she was pissed at the government. So it wasn't a very good test case because mm -hmm. Uh, the other side didn't screw up. But she didn't do anything uh, from your point of view that was out of the normal range for a federal judge. 
No, uh, she did begin to use begin to use some. You know, she she at one point she said so. So the new flavor you're spinning now is such an. You know, she was very sarcastic and skeptical, and it seemed. You know, there were as, aspects of it that suddenly this person that seemed uh, reasonable and uh, suddenly there there was this uh, anger. Uh, but again, uh, some of it was justified. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's go to uh, skip a day, which is yesterday, and go back to Tuesday when um, the first of the Fulton County hearings happened this week. Anna, tell us about the issue that was before the court on Tuesday. Yeah, so we had a few issues before the court in Fulton County on Tuesday. And just to kind of tell everyone where we're at right now, this is the pretrial motion phase of uh, the Kenneth Chesbro and Sidney Powell case, which is set to start jury selection on October 20th. So I think that's uh, what eight days from now, which is uh, really crazy. Um, but so Judge McAfee set a number of hearings on a lot of these pretrial motions to dismiss or uh, general demurrers. I think that's how you say it. It's a uh, it's a special term for a type of motion that they use in Georgia to uh, challenge the indictment and, and get charges d- dismissed. So, OK, those- so I'm going to pause you right there. Because we had a big conversation in the lawfare office among several lawyers and fake lawyers who do not practice or not fake practice in Georgia, all about the question of what a demurrer is and whether it is or is not the same thing as a motion to dismiss. And we were all uh, quite hamstrung in this conversation by uh, not being Georgia lawyers or fake lawyers. Uh, there seem to be both motions to dismiss and general demurrers filed in this case for the for the total Georgia criminal practice nerds. What's the difference? Yeah. So a general a, a general demur is is more about how the indictment was written and whether, you know, they've handed down, you know, a, a, a valid indictment that has all of the elements that one would need to have in order to kind of claim that someone's violated the statute. Right. So it's more about kind of is the indictment and the way it's written sufficient, uh, whereas you have motions to dismiss that are more that are less about the way that the indictment has been written and more about, you know, uh, you might have immunity claims. You might have uh, other kind of legal challenges to the the crime as charged that doesn't really have to do with exactly how you've written the indictment. Does that make sense? It makes enough sense for now. I could ask you a hundred questions about whether this argument would be a general demur or a motion to dismiss, and this one, how where the line is between the two. But that would take us down a crazy rabbit hole that would have the audience rolling their eyes. Um, so let's go on to these were general demurs, not motions to dismiss, and for purposes of the rest of the conversation, right? That's a distinction 
without a difference, they would both result in the charges getting thrown out. Yeah, I I mean, it's and some of them that were that we were talking about at these hearings were motions to dismiss. Some of them were general demurs. But I, I do think that for the purposes of this conversation, it's just easier to refer to them as motions to dismiss the charges or or motions to, to quash throw the out the right throw out yeah, the indictment. All exactly. right. So how many of them were argued? On Tuesday. So the, the first day on Tuesday, on the 10th, we had three motions that were argued and some of them were just Chesbro. Some of them were Chesbro and Powell. But just to give you a rundown of those motions, the first one was a motion to dismiss base, based on supremacy clause grounds. And, and Ben, that's one of the motions that we spoke to Chesbro's attorneys about on the po- right. Lawfare podcast. I believe it's the one that I told them I thought was a loser. Did yeah, Judge McAfee agree with me? <laughs> that's the one. Um, so it, it's hard to tell what Judge McAfee thought exactly based on the questions. But what I can say that I I got the a sense of from his questioning and from his comments on that one is that he thinks that that is that this motion is something that you might raise at a directed verdict stage. So that's after the jury has heard all of the evidence and and the parties have made their arguments and then defense counsel will stand up and say, Your Honor, we move for a directed verdict. And, And it's at that point that the judge will have to decide whether or not you know, there the state raised enough evidence and to and and there's kind of this whole, you know, calculus with that. And that and so the judge was saying that maybe they could raise this supremacy clause issue uh, at the directed verdict stage. But but he, he felt like there was too much factual development, maybe that needed to happen uh, before the the issue could be raised. Uh, so he he thought it was maybe he seemed to think it was just at this procedural juncture. It was not appropriate. Um, he made some comment about, you know, maybe we should have a, a, a defense or a criminal defendant equi- equivalent of a summary judgment standard that you would maybe have in a civil case. But this that's not what we have. And so, um, you know, maybe you you uh, bring this to my attention later on. And that's also kind of the reaction that he had to the second motion that we heard, which was a motion to dismiss based on First Amendment protections, because Powell and Chesbro, or actually maybe it's just Chesbro on that one, but the the argument was in in, in essence that you know the the conduct that has been charged in in various counts related to you know the fake elector scheme and Chesbro writing the memos as the uh, so-called architect of that scheme, that that was all uh, First Amendment protected activity. And and, you know, Judge McAfee again kind of mentioned that he thought that there was just too much in the oral argument that was about uh, factual issues and factual development. And so he he seemed to think that it was not at this stage something that was appropriate to raise. But he didn't rule from the bench on either of those. So we we are still waiting to hear on on those two. And then the final one on Tuesday was a motion to exclude legal memorandum from the trial. 
that was uh, relevant to Mr. Chesbro, particularly because, of course, the the main evidence in the state's case in chief, as far as as I'm aware, um, against Mr. Chesbro is this series of legal memos, as he calls them, um, in which he sets out, you know, uh, various views on the Electoral Count Act and and how potentially the Trump uh, electors could meet. And then as we go into January 6th, how how potentially Joe Biden could be essentially blocked from from uh, meeting the number of votes that would be needed at the joint session of Congress to become president. So that series of memos is a big part of the case against Mr. Chesbro. Uh, So they have sought to exclude those memos based on attorney client privilege grounds. And there's realistically, that's functionally a motion to dismiss, right? Because the right. government, with, without those memos, the government has no case against Ken Chesbro. That's right. I mean, they have a few things that are like emails where Chesbro is, you know, emailing people like David Schaefer with instructions for how to fill out these electoral certificates. But even that, I believe, has been included in, um, you know, what has been called the the legal memorandum or or work attorney work product kind of stuff. So it is essentially does function as a motion to dismiss, as I understand it even though it's basically a motion in limine in, in terms of, you know, how it's written and and what the judge has to decide, because the question is whether it can come into evidence. And on that one, you know, I think Judge McAfee, could, because the the prosecution has raised a, a number of arguments about that in response. Wait, before, it, bef- before you go into this, let me just give a little bit of background for people who don't know the law of attorney-client privilege. General rule, you write a memo to a client and that memo hasn't been voluntarily disclosed to anybody else. That's not coming in as evidence against the client. That's that's the molten core of attorney-client privilege material. Three questions, three things could, could override the privilege here. One is is this guy actually a lawyer for the Trump campaign or is he some rando who shows up off the street and starts writing memos, right? You actually, it has to actually be a communication with a client and exactly what Ken Chesborough's relationship is with the Trump campaign and with Donald Trump becomes important. Second question that's going to be really that may be really important here is has the client waived the privilege or because just like you can waive your conflict you know your conflicts with your lawyer you can also waive the attorney client privilege and Donald Trump has said he's going to defend his federal case or his lawyers have by citing arguing that he was acting on advice of counsel right that he so in order to do that he's going to have to establish at the federal level, that there was a basis for that the lawyers were actually advising him that what he was doing is okay. One of those lawyers is Ken Chesbrough, and some of the material in question is the this set of memos. And so it's possible that he either has waived or means to waive the privilege, which would not be helpful to Ken Chesbrough, but might be the right way for Donald Trump to try to defend himself. Third issue. 
there's the crime fraud exception to the privilege and you cannot use your attorney's you, the privilege falls where you are using an attorney's advice in order to commit a crime and so my assumption here is that the government's argument and anna tell me if this is not what they said is that they think that they can establish either that Ken Chesborough was not in fact a retained counsel or that Donald Trump is going to waive, or most probably, I think, that the evidence shows that Trump was using this legal advice to commit a crime. Is that where the government is? And which right. one of those are they are they arguing? Right. It's kind of all three. Um, it, you know, there, there were elements of all three in the argument. One is that they they argued that Chesbro had had not shown any evidence that he actually was engaged by the Trump campaign to do legal work for them. Just a crypto bro who walked in <laughs> off the street. Right. And 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 so as a result, Judge McAfee did order the attorneys to file under seal. You know, they they in response said we, we have proof of this. We have an email. You know, he was working pro bono, so we don't have an engagement letter, but we do have have, you know, an email that we think will be sufficient to show Whoa. that he was. My pro bono <laughs> lawyers, all, there's always an engagement letter. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know what the situation was with this email and with Mr. Chesbro specifically, but they say that they think they have something that missed yeah, uh, that I mean, judgment. Query whether that's going to end up being litigated. Um, right. Because, because when, when you want to show that you're somebody's lawyer, you want to be able to produce the engagement letter. Right. And 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 so they are going to file something under seal that Judge McAfee will take a look at himself to decide on on that point that you've raised of whether or not he really was an attorney working for the Trump campaign. On the second part of waiver, the state kind of pointed to these maybe like implied waivers of some of the, the memos. So, for example, sending David Schaefer, who was not a client of the Trump campaign or of, uh, excuse me, of, of Mr. Chesbro, uh, sending someone like David Schaefer, who's not a client, a third party, uh, this, uh, you know, instructions for how to fill out the certificates. They said that that is functionally a kind of waiver of sorts. And then uh, the, the last point is the one that was really focused on the most, which is the crime fraud exception. And where Judge McAfee ended on that was, you know, he seemed to, again, focus on, you know, they they only have to raise a prima facie case of of uh, meeting the crime fraud exception. You know, they it's a preponderance of evidence standard. And and even if I am not prepared now to say whether or not they've met that, why can't we just do what we usually would do in this kind of situation in Georgia, which would be to have the state proffer the evidence and then they can prove it up as we go through trial. And as we go through trial, if I decide that they haven't, you know, proved the that they've met the crime fraud exception, then we're in mistrial territory. So he he kind of said that at least conditionally, maybe it could be um, admitted uh, on that, you know, kind of method. But then in the end, he ended up saying, you know, what I want this, the, the parties to do is 
I, you know, I want Mr. Chesbro to submit under seal the thing that proves that he was an attorney. I also want uh, to see under seal the, the things that you guys actually want excluded that you're asking to get excluded. And then, you know, I think that he instructed to my memory, he instructed the prosecution as well, kind of after that process to uh, submit the materials that they had argued were proof of the exception being met. So things like the January 6th report, um, the federal indictment, they kind of raised these extra Fulton County um, case materials that they wanted to submit as kind of uh, a prima facie case or proof of, of meeting the exception. And of course, Chesbro's attorneys argued in response to that, that you can't just submit like uh, an, a federal indictment and say that that is that is that you've met your burden like that's they they did not think that that was sufficient. And so I think there's still going to be some behind the scenes, maybe argument over those things. But Judge McAfee is going to consider it and make a decision. So we don't have a ruling on that yet. But we'll see. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing, since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers, and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there, and these companies keep 
acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. So that gets us through Tuesday, and then we were back in action on Wednesday. What was before the court then? Wednesday was Rico Day in Fulton County, <laughs> just like every day in Fulton County, it seems like. But uh, <laughs> we were we were uh, focused on that day with pretrial motions that were challenging the Rico charges in the case, which of course are the, the is the kind of glue of the case. It's the main charge that every single defendant in the case is charged with. And if the Rico count is gone, you know the state still has a a lot of these leftover uh, separate charges that are kind of discrete charges, but they're at a real disadvantage because of some of the evidentiary kind of benefits of, of charging someone with RICO because you get to bring in a whole lot of evidence that you usually want it if you're just uh, prosecuting a case that has just a you know discrete charge that's not based on RICO. So uh, the, the two main motions that we focused on, the first, again, been it's a motion that we talked to Chesbro's attorneys about. So it's this motion in which they argue that the RICO charge must be dismissed because it doesn't the indictment doesn't sufficiently allege that the the conspiracy to overturn the election was motivated by pecuniary gain or physical threat. Uh, and the argument here, it's a little bit of a novel one, but they're saying that under Georgia's RICO statute, 
there's this legislative statement of purpose or statement of intent. And it basically kind of says, you know, we're enacting this law because we want to uh, use it to um, focus on conspiracies that are motivated by pecuniary gain or physical threat or physical harm. And so they're saying basically that's an element of the crime itself. That's an element of the RICO charge. Yeah, this didn't work for the gun control people with the Second Amendment. Right, right. <laughs> you know, like which has a statement of purpose in it, and uh, the Supreme Court doesn't care. Does Judge McAfee appear to care about the prefatory purpose statement in the RICO statute in Georgia? I don't think Judge McAfee seemed to care, but you know, he's very even keeled. He he did not seem he really to really is. Re- he really doesn't show his cards. <laughs> yeah, he didn't show his cards a whole lot. But you know, I I I have to say that uh, again, I, I will stress that this is a pretty novel question of law. And so I, I would be really surprised if Judge McAfee you know, took it upon himself to declare that that pecuniary gain and uh, physical threat is something that is an element of of the RICO statute in Georgia. Um, So I I will be very surprised if he agrees with Chesbro's team, although I I, you know, do wonder what maybe some of the appellate courts will will say. It's a really interesting argument, Um, although on the facts here, I think that the state has made the case that there are elements of this enterprise that were motivated by pecuniary gain and physical threat. You have the harassment campaign against Ruby Freeman. You have the fact that winning the presidency means that you get all kinds of benefit, economic benefits and other types of benefits. So I, I think that they, you know, even if an appellate court were to say, yeah, actually, this is right. You've you've got to have some kind of showing of uh, pecuniary gain or, or motiv- motivated or effect of uh, economic benefit or physical threat. I, I still am not sure that really serves to defeat these the, the the charges here. And then, okay, so moving on to the next big RICO motion that went down on Wednesday in Fulton County, it was again a motion that we discussed on the podcast, and and it was this continuity question. And this one gets a little bit complicated, but the the gist of it is that in federal RICO practice. Uh, you know, you typically have one of the elements being showing that there was continuity of the criminal activity or of the so-called predicate act. Yeah, this that, is their best motion. Yeah. And, and, I think, and I think this one, I don't think it has legs at the district court level, but I think it's an it's a very interesting motion. And and I think, you know, if if any of their motions to dismiss has has traction, it's this one, I think. Yeah, it's a super interesting argument. Um, and I and it's it's one that I think, you know, it's it been we talked about this with them, but there's a lot of more federal case law on this, but not so much Georgia case law. 
And, you know, in the room was John Floyd, who is the leading expert on RICO in Georgia and and one of the leading, you know, RICO experts nationwide. And he made some pretty compelling arguments, I think, about the textual differences between the federal RICO statute and the Georgia RICO statute. On behalf of the state. Yeah. Yeah. And and. And, you know, uh, so, yes, on behalf of the state and making arguments about why the specific provision under Georgia's RICO statute that these folks are charged with is has a different kind of a series of elements because it's a conspiracy to violate RICO rather than just a straight, you know, violation of the RICO statute itself. Um, so he, they differentiated on those grounds. And I, I do think maybe the state will get the upper hand here again, in part because it's a novel territory. And I just really doubt that a trial court judge is going to take it upon himself to kind of declare new law, uh, especially in the Georgia's trial of the century. So if this does uh, result in any kind of, you know, relief for the defendant, it probably It'll be on direct be, appeal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I should say they can ask for interlo- interlocutory appeal. So they could ask for it before the trial. But Judge McAfee indicated last week that that's unlikely. Uh, so I think that it will probably be on direct appeal that this may get taken up by Georgia's appellate courts. And I assume he declared it unlikely because they're the ones who are pushing for a speedy trial, right? So you don't you don't get to say speedy trial rights with one hand and, ooh, can we pause for four months so we can uh, appeal something in the meantime? Yeah, exactly. He That's exactly what he said to uh, Scott Grubman and Manny Aurora, Chasbro's attorneys. He was kind of like, well, you guys are the ones who have asked for the speedy trial and we're going to try to seat a, a jury uh, by November 5th, I think it is. And so that's what we're going to do. And it kind of sorry, you know, that 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 seemed to be the the um, tenor of what he was saying. Um, so I'll be really surprised if he grants uh, interlocutory appeal, which in Georgia is discretionary on those matters. All right. So Quinta, long waiting Sitting there while others talk, Quinta Jurassic, you have been following Judge Tanya Chutkin this week. Uh, what has uh, uh, the good judge been up to and what's been going on in her court? So we've had less activity in the federal January 6th case than in the other two cases we've discussed. I don't have any stories of uh, courtroom excitement and daring do like uh, Roger and Anna. Um, What we have had is a a series of pretty interesting motions. So last week, repeat viewers will remember we talked about a motion to dismiss uh, that Trump had just filed on the grounds of presidential immunity, essentially arguing uh, first that there exists uh, immunity from criminal prosecution for presidents for conduct that's within the outer perimeter of their official duties. And second, that uh, Trump's actions as described in the indictment leading up to January 6th 
are within this were within the scope of his official duties as president. Um, I'm not going to belabor that, although we can talk about it more because we discussed it a bit last time. I'll just say that um, we're still waiting for DOJ to file its response or for the special counsel to file its response rather. And I'm uh, I think we're all going to be very interested in in what they say. Um, since clearly they've thought this issue through, they brought the indictment in the first place, um, but responding to the, the sort of arguments that Trump sets out and how they choose to do that will be very telling. Yeah. So before you go on, mm-hmm. I will just flag again that this is whether Trump prevails on it or not. And I do not believe there are five votes on the Supreme Court for Trump's theory, combined legal and factual theory of the case. Uh, This issue has the potential to delay the case in a very important way, because when Tanya Chutkin rejects this motion and denies this motion, (laughs) um, which she will, that is almost certainly subject to interlocutory appeal, which will freeze the case for some period of time while it goes up to the D.C. Circuit and maybe the Supreme Court. So I think I think we can go into why if somebody asks, but it's a... Someone really a, wants to know about right, the if, intricacies if, of civil procedure. Th- this is a criminal procedure. Criminal procedure. It, this is a, um, or it's really a pellet criminal procedure. But if people want to talk about it, we can talk about it. But it's uh, the major significance of this motion is twofold. One, that it will in some way for the first time establish the answer to the question, to what extent does the president have immunity from criminal charge? Answer will not be not at all. Probably, one hopes, will not be as broad <laughs> as broad and inclusive as Trump is arguing for. But the Supreme Court and is going to have to answer this question in response to this motion. That's important fact number one. Important fact number two is that that may take some time to do. And that could that time could be very beneficial to Donald Trump. Quinta, the floor is once again yours. <laughs> no, I think that's that's absolutely right. If anyone's interested in kind of a high level overview of the issues regarding interlocutory appeals, Ruth Marcus at the Washington Post's editorial page has has written about this. Um, Trump loves to make interlocutory appeals, which is why I made my slip there. He's made a lot of them in in civil cases, and so I'm sure he's excited to. Uh, bring that to criminal cases as well. Um, so moving on to the other motions that I think are of interest. So there are two that were filed by the special counsel's office earlier this week that are both interesting in different ways. The first is a motion uh, that's styled as a motion for fair and protective jury procedures. And essentially what that is asking for is for the court to sort of formalize the typical system that the federal courts in D.C. have for jury selection. Um, the, the government emphasizes repeatedly that they're not actually asking for anything out of the ordinary. They're, you know, they're not asking for the jurors to be sequestered or anything like that. But there are typical procedures that uh, courts, the courts in D.C. will use to make sure that um you know, jurors' identities aren't widely distributed, and they they sort of want that locked in ahead of time to ensure that everyone is safe, essentially. Um, and they say explicitly 
Uh, we are asking for this um, in light of, and I'll quote here from the motion, um, in light of the public attention that is expected and the defendant's record of using public social media platforms in an intimidating manner, further evinced by events in a separate trial in New York next last week. Now, what it's referring to there, as they say later on in the motion, is a post that Trump made on Truth Social about a clerk of the court in a New York state court in the civil trial regarding the uh, alleged fraud in the Trump organization, where Trump posted on Truth Social a picture of a female clerk um, saying falsely that she was Chuck Schumer's girlfriend. <laughs> and essentially directing harassment her way. Uh, judge Arthur Engoron, who's the judge in that case, did not take particularly kindly to that um, and uh, ruled from the bench, essentially limiting what people could say in, about the trail on, on social media. Um, so the, the special counsel's office is clearly aware of that, is referencing it explicitly um, and says, and I quote, um, there is cause for concern about what the defendant may do with social media research on potential jurors in this case. So I found this very notable. It's also notable that this, we don't have the Trump team's opposition, but it does say that this is an opposed motion. So, you know, not only is the government asking for this, Trump is pushing back. And I think this is kind of an interesting opening salvo in in what may be a, a telling negotiation, let's say, um, in terms of what Trump wants to be able to learn and say about potential jurors. Um, so that's one motion. The other motion uh, from the government, which is also opposed by Trump, uh, is a motion uh, to essentially, uh, in colloquial terms, make Trump put up or shut up uh, when it comes to the advice of counsel defense. So what I'm referring to there for listeners who haven't tracked closely is that Trump's lawyers have said a number of times in interviews that he plans to argue that the actions that he took for which he was indicted regarding January 6th were pursuant to the advice of counsel. So this is a, a legal defense that he can make if he wishes. These comments have been made in a number of media interviews, which uh, the government cites at length. Um, and what they're essentially saying here is, okay, you want to make that argument, you then need to hand over the material that you're going to use to make that argument. And that is relevant because, and again, I'm going to just going to quote from the motion here, which I have in front of me, at least 25 witnesses during the investigation withheld information, communications, and documents based on assertion of the attorney-client privilege under circumstances where the privilege holder appears to be the defendant or his 2020 presidential campaign. These included co-conspirators, so I'm assuming co-conspirators who are in numbered one through six in the original indictment, uh, former campaign employees, the campaign itself, outside attorneys, a non-attorney intermediary, and even a family member of the defendant. Uh, so... We can all make our guesses about who that might be. I don't know. Um, but this is crucial because it means that, you know, if that these there's a lot of people who the special counsel's office tried to talk to who they were not able to talk to because they were invoking attorney-client privilege. If what they're saying here is if Trump wants to make an advice of counsel defense, which he said that he does, um, he's gonna have to put some of that information into the public. Um, and they'd like to see it now, essentially. So they're essentially trying to speed up the schedule and kind of trying to get that on the table um, before the, the trial begins. 
Um, there's some extended explanation of why they think that's appropriate. But I did read this as kind of a signal to Trump that, you know, he can't keep saying one thing and doing another. If he's going to talk about advice of counsel defense, he needs to actually hand over that information. And so, so let's be clear that, first of all, this has significant implications for the motion that Anna was talking yes. about. Um, so notice the interactions between the two cases here. This would, I, I think the technical uh, criminal procedure term is fuck Ken Chesborough's advice of counsel defense, uh, or uh, uh, not advice of counsel defense, uh, attorney-client privilege argument on on the suppression motion. And he, um, I mean, he could be one of the co-conspirators that's listed here who, oh, who he refused to testify. Is. Exactly. Right. Um, but the the second point is that I think the subtext of this motion, and I hear I'm, I don't know if speculating or psychoanalyzing a little bit, but the theory is that I think that the government is working with here is that Trump won't actually waive because if he waives, then all these people who privately advised him, you know, you could go to jail for this. All of that becomes admissible. And so I think I think Quinta's original formulation of this as a put up or shut up motion is is quite correct. And it also has a bit of a go ahead, make our day quality <laughs> to it. Right, right. I think that's I think that's totally fair. And I will be very interested to see how Trump's team responds. Again, um, I am not an expert on the specific criminal procedure issues here, but I, I do wonder whether one possibility might be for Trump to just say, we don't need to decide this at this stage. And that at least helps him, uh, you know, give him a little more time to address to, or to, to figure out how he wants to handle. So we'll see. And then the last motion uh, that's of interest is a motion from Trump's team. And this is a motion to send out a number of subpoenas to a number of entities, um, including uh, the National Archives, the Clerk of the House of Representatives, um, the General Counsel of the Department of Homeland Security, and uh, two uh, U.S. representatives. And this is for information that he claims he needs for his defense that he says was supposedly lost from the January 6th committee, um, sort of in the period where the January 6th committee winked out of existence, uh, that he claims would potentially be helpful for his defense because uh, there is such overlap between the indictment and the January 6th report. I will confess I am a little puzzled at what precisely he is referring to here. I, I don't, I am not aware of missing material from the January 6th committee. And it's also not completely clear to me if he even, if there even could be a subpoena with his representative Barry Loudermilk um, and representative Benny Thompson, who is the chair of the January 6th committee, given the speech or debate clause. I'm sure his lawyers know that, which makes me wonder how, to what extent this is just sort of bloviating posturing to make the client happy and to what extent there actually is 
something going on here. I haven't seen a huge amount of reporting on this, and I'll confess I didn't have time to dig into it in any depth myself. Um, So I'll just kind of put a big question mark (laughs) over this one, um, unless anyone has any thoughts about what he might be referring to here. No idea what he's referring to, but the answer to the speech or debate clause is very clear, which is that no federal court can drag a member of Congress into federal court to answer questions about legislative acts, which are construed rather broadly. On the other hand, Barry Loudermilk may want to testify and therefore uh, nothing prevents them from doing it either. I don't know what he's talking about, but I do think that there are some material, some supporting documents that were not released by the January 6th committee, uh, because I have in the depositions in, for example, reporting on our Coffee County story, there are emails that are referenced that I've never seen in the publicly available documents. However, that doesn't mean that the special counsel's office doesn't have those materials and hasn't turned them over in discovery. So I'm not really sure. (laughs) Right. That's, that's what's puzzling is that he's not, I, as, as I read this, he's not claiming that the materials aren't public. He's saying that they're somehow hidden, including from him. And I, I genuinely don't know what he's referring to. Yeah. and, And in that sense, I have no idea what that could be. All right, we are going to go to audience questions. And the first question today, uh, the most important question, Jacob, uh, the floor is yours. Oh, good, because uh, I hadn't heard recently, but the most important thing I wanted to know is, are we still first to the court hearings? First yeah, in line? So this is, I mean, the, the important question. Roger, this is the first federal court hearing we've been in in a while. Uh, were you first? I was first. Um, <laughs> but uh, it may be getting a little uh, sillier than it even was before because uh, it it seemed that um, a lot of people got in this time. About 12 got in. You know, uh, her courtroom, as, as Anna has told you in the past, is uh, small. It's a fourth floor. Uh, courtroom with um, only two rows, and uh, the first row is reserved mainly for presumably, and actually most of it was empty today. Nevertheless, it would remain reserved. I think for for government lawyers or for the other side's lawyers. But uh, anyway, the other uh, a lot of people that didn't get there as as soon as I did got in. And uh, but for what for what it's worth, we were first. All right. And Anna, are you have you been first at Fulton County these last few days? Well, I have to admit, no, I have not. Um, But that's but that's because so in Fulton County, because it's live streamed, I don't worry about getting into court, especially on on these pretrial motions, because uh, yeah, there's no line at Fulton County, right? Right. It, there's no line. So I don't I don't have to worry about getting there to start the line because there is no line. Um, so, okay, so Fulton County doesn't count. It doesn't count. I mean, everybody, everybody has access. Judge McAfee people has a YouTube page and you can watch every minute of 
Of and it's of, often the videos are labeled Scott McAfee's Zoom meeting, which yeah, I find exactly. very charming. I, I mean, you there, there's like no point in standing in line. Although, Jacob, check back in when jury selection starts, because I know that because of the nature of jury selection and the rules around you know, recording jurors and jury identity. I I am aware that a lot more reporters will be there when it starts. So I am getting a little bit nervous about being first for jury selection because I want to make sure that I get into court. By the way, I, I just wanted to say the, the court personnel at, at the board federal courthouse were very, very nice about this. Uh, they noticed this old man hanging out in front of the court door and uh, they they brought out a, a, they checked to see what it was going on, what, why it was there. And then they brought me out a chair and, uh, and then periodically the security guy would check out and say, you need to use the bathroom or anything. And uh, remarkably I didn't, but it, it was very reassuring to know that maybe I could if the need arose. Well, just big shout out to Fort Pierce marshals and staff. Uh, uh, that would not happen in at the Barrett Prettyman Courthouse, I don't think. Though the marshals there are are lovely people whose love of their fellow humans outgandhi's Gandhi, I'm sure. All right, uh, Joyce asks. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm asking to be educated. I've seen some discussion on the internet that the immunity claims don't really need to be decided before a trial, but can be litigated in the normal course after the trial. Who decides and what are the criteria for an interlocutory appeal? So, Joyce, it will shock you to know that chatter on the internet can be false. Not only do immunity claims can they is this wrong and but they are they are unique in that they must be uh evaluated before trial the reason the theory here so the classic example of this is speech and debate clause immunity where the constitution says that you're not allowed to question a member of congress about speech and debate outside of the body right so a court tries to put a person on trial for a speech that she made on the floor of the house. And the Supreme Court has said that challenge to that, that motion to dismiss has to be appealable before trial because the speech and debate immunity is not just an immunity. It's not just an affirmative defense. It's a protection against being tried at all. And so you have to be able to argue that before the case actually happens. And the argument here will be that presidential immunity is similarly an immunity against being tried. And uh, I think, you know, again, I want to give credit to Ruth Marcus, who first spotted this issue. Um, But I was skeptical of it and spent a little time trying to debunk her analysis Uh, I found in trying to do so that Ruth is right and that I just have no doubt that this will be subject to interlocutory appeal, which brings me to the following part of your question, which is what's the procedure for it? 
And the answer is the procedure is if they follow what the Supreme Court said in in the uh, speech and debate clause cases, it's just a direct appeal. It just takes place right away. The D.C. Circuit and the Supreme Court can expedite it as much as they want, um, of course. So you could have the D.C. Circuit rule on it very quickly. But the D.C. Circuit's been sitting on a very similar question for over a year now. So you could also have a substantial delay. And of course, at the Supreme Court, there are no rules at all. They do whatever they want. Um, And so I think you could imagine this depend. It really just depends on the urgency with which the D.C. Circuit finds it and whether they like Don Tanya Chutkin think it's important to keep this trial on schedule for a trial in March. And, you know, when the Supreme Court wants to think about something that quickly, uh, you know, ask the executed Kirin defendants, the Nazi saboteurs, how fast the Supreme Court can consider a pre-trial or in that case, mid-trial appeal. Uh, The Nixon tapes case was extremely fast. So, you know, the Supreme Court can move very quickly when it wants to. But if people want to slow this down and make it uh, uh, go into the next go past the next election, this is a great vehicle through which to do it because it's a very meaty issue. It's a very substantial issue and it could bear a lot of legal scholarship without being uh, without being inappropriate. Okay, Josh asks, he has two questions uh, that he uh, uh, wants me to read. Can Eileen Cannon's eventual decision about the Garcia matters for NADA be appealed? Roger, what's the, what do you think the answer to that is? Are Garcia rulings, they're not subject to interlocutory appeal, right? No, I, I don't think so. And um uh, I suppose if they were really off the wall, you could try to bring a mandamus. But, you know, the government, of course, doesn't want delay. I mean, what, what we're really trying to do here is protect, in case there's a conviction, um, protect the conviction. And I mean, that's what the government specifically to protect it against a habeas petition for ineffective assistance of counsel on the basis that the lawyer was conflicted. Right. And and you could theoretically, you might also be able to, if you change lawyers, the, your appellate lawyer might even be able to make that do argument. That too. Appeal. So you could do it, you know, but I don't, for the government to do it, it's interesting with some of these problems with issues with uh, Woodward, it might be interesting whether they would consider a mandamus if, if this goes in a in a unexpected way, uh, I just don't know the answer. All right. Was there anybody surprising at the? I assume both defendants and the relevant lawyers were at the hearings, right? Yes. Um, Blanche was there. Todd Blanche, and uh, you know, it's a little awkward. I mean, a little. I mean, before the thing started, you see him sort of chatting amiably with Nauta, who you know isn't his client and um but you know it's all sort of in the family so i don't think there were surprises the 
four prosecutors were um, Jay Bratt and uh, the, the lead was David Harbach, um, Michael Thakur and John Pelletieri. They're names that you might not have heard. All right, uh, Mr. John H., the floor is yours. Uh, thanks, Ben. So I was just curious if you have any thoughts on the media coalition's request for video access or in the, well, they asked for a bunch of alternatives um, to the D.C. District Court trial, which was docketed as a miscellaneous action last Wednesday. Um, I'll also add that this summer I took a trip to Rhode Island and I randomly went by the federal court and a very bored operations manager gave me a tour of the whole courthouse. And he mentioned to me that apparently they are still doing both criminal and civil trials via Zoom, not for counsel to appear, but just so the public can watch, which honestly I thought was not allowed anymore um, with the CARES Act expiring, but they're still doing it. And they have a webpage listing all the Zoom hearings. So, uh, you know, anyway, it, I, I would have also thought this uh, motion would be, a, well, it's not a motion, I'm sorry, the request was would be a dead letter and I, I suspect Ben thinks that, but given the, that it's from so many media organizations, you know, the Associated Press, Bloomberg, the New York Times, CNN, et cetera, you have to think they think there's some value in doing it, even if it's solely performative. So uh, what do you think? I think the value is solely performative. Um, and <laughs> I don't think there's uh, any likelihood that given uh, federal court rules, uh, there is going to be anything broadcast outside of the courthouse. Um, I will say that I have raised a separate question, uh, which, uh, which is whether it violates the court's rules to use Microsoft Word's auto-transcription uh, 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 speech to text in order to put out a a uh, real-time caption-like transcript, uh, which I think under the specific text of the uh, rules does probably doesn't violate the rules, um, but I would never do it without the court's assent. Um, and so I've been kind of working on that question and trying to get the court's guidance as to how it interprets its rules. Uh, stay tuned on that. But I don't I just don't think there's any prospect of this or any other federal court authorizing a video feed of of uh, federal court criminal trial proceedings. Roger, uh, do you disagree with that? No, I, I agree. And just one note, there there are other federal districts that do outlaw verbatim transcripts across the board. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it would also upset their relationship with the uh, U.S. court reporters. It would be a huge tumult. But yeah, we'll, but, we'll but, but nothing next to putting a camera in there. All right. The last question uh, is from Simon, who says there's been reporting that special counsel Jack Smith has investigated Trump's sharing classified information about U.S. nuclear submarines with an Australian billionaire. If true, I'm wondering about what the obstacles would be to winning a case charging Trump with mishandling classified information while in office. The answer to this question is that the factual premise of the question is wrong, uh, at least as uh, the New York Times has reported the allegation 
this took place after Trump allegedly took place, if it took place, it took place after Trump left office uh, at Mar-a-Lago. The further answer to the question is that there is no way to charge a president with mishandling classified information while in office. The classification rules are embedded, embodied in executive order. They don't uh, apply to the president and the president's handling of classified information is by definition legal. Uh, that really is an area where the fact that the president did it makes it legal. Uh, yes, Roger. Yeah, and maybe you know more about this uh, than I do. There might be one exception to that. There are some documents that are classified under the Atomic Energy the Act nuclear rather than under the restricted those... data statute. Yeah. So the yeah, there are some material. Importantly, there's there's one of those in the indictment, right? Which but... is important in terms of Trump saying I I could I I I declassified all of these. Uh, yeah, I think the that's a, it's an interesting point. The submarine material is not restricted data under the Atomic Energy Act. So that type of classified information, certainly not. I will say about the restricted data uh, category, the likelihood that you're going to test the theory that it applies by statute to the president is pretty minimal, um, particularly when you have a, shall we say, target-rich environment with respect to much less controversial mishandlings of material after he left office. All right, we are going to leave it there. Uh, we will be back next week, and we'll see you next time. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution our audio engineer this episode is the intrepid Anna Hickey of Lawfare. Hey, folks, I know what you're thinking to yourselves. You're thinking, how can I become one of the cool people who gets to ask questions on the Lawfare podcast? And I'm here to give you the answer to that. I can bring you into the light. Go to Lawfare, to lawfaremedia.org slash support Become a material supporter of Lawfare, and once a week, you will get invited to Lawfare Live so that you, too, can be one of the cool kids at the cool table asking the questions. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, who is definitely one of the cool kids. Our music is performed by veritable cool kid Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.